I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. What's got six legs and is tiny enough to take a walk down the edge of a penny? The world's smallest remote-controlled walking robot, of course. Northwestern University engineers have created a micro-crab bot, which could one day assist with surgeries inside the human body. Joining us now to talk about the tiny crab robot and his team's other creations is John Rogers, professor of materials science, biomedical engineering, and neurological surgery at Northwestern. John, first, can you describe for us what the robot looks like? How small is it exactly? It's about half a millimeter uh, on a side, roughly. And uh, the students, I think, just just for fun, designed it in the, in the form of a, a small crab, I guess. That's sort of what it, what it looks like. Mm-hmm. But uh, they also built robots that look like inchworms and grasshoppers. There's quite, you know, a high degree of design flexibility in terms of the shapes. It's smaller than a flea, right? That is tiny. Yeah, pretty small. Actually, we can make these robots even smaller. The problem is that uh, once they get too small, they tend to be very sticky to solid surfaces. It's just sort of surface forces and the way things scale as you reduce the dimension. So these are about as small as we could make them with the ability also to walk and move. So, you know, I think there's a future for for going even smaller, but this is about as far as we could go based on the the way that we're actuating the legs. Yeah, these crabs can walk, bend, twist, they can jump. How fast does it move? A couple of body lengths per second uh, is kind of the way way that we measure it. So in an absolute sense, it's moving sort of slowly, but relative to the body size, it's running pretty quickly, I guess. Yeah. So the part that's fascinating to me, most fascinating, is uh, it's still remote controlled, even though it's so tiny and, and there aren't any wires, right? So how exactly are you controlling it? Well, kind of, kind of a funny scheme, actually. So, so it is remote controlled, and, and there are, in fact, no wires, as, as you pointed out. What, what we do is we focus uh, the output of a laser to a very tiny spot that we can then scan across the body of the robot. And the actuation mechanism is associated with a small amount of heating associated with absorption of a fraction of that incident laser light. And so as we move it across the body, we can sequentially activate different legs across the structure of the robot. And in that way, we can make it walk forwards, backwards, side to side. If we pulse the laser, we can make it jump and do different things with that type of scheme. How far away can you control it from with the laser? Well, long distances in, in principle, as long as you have a direct line of sight access, because we do need the ability to pass the laser from the source you know, to the robot. But in principle, you know, that path length could be very long as long as you have unimpeded optical access to the robot. Gosh, John, I'm just, I'm picking my job from the floor here. So you're out here, you're making robots, you're working with <laughs> lasers, and, and you can make it any animal you want, essentially. So right now, it, it just sounds like you guys are just these mad scientists <laughs> just having the most fun. Yeah, it, it, it is a lot of fun, I, I have to say. It, it's kind it's of exploratory be. Uh, research, to, to be honest. So I think it's easy to uh, envision all kinds of sci-fi related, you know, applications associated with these robots. But in a sense, I think it's an important advance. But in an absolute way, you know, they're still pretty primitive. We can move them around, Mm -hmm. but they don't perform a task. So we can't grasp objects or move them around. We can just cause the robot to walk. But but I think it's a good 
first step, you know, in, in the direction of a development of a technology that could have various sorts of interesting applications, particularly those in clinical medicine for minimally invasive surgeries. That's kind of what we're thinking. It'd be, you know, kind of years into the future, mm-hmm. but trying to set the groundwork around different engineering capabilities that, that would enable that type of thing. Very cool. And now I understand that in actually building this crab bot, your team was inspired by the mechanisms of pop-up books. How? The manufacturing process involves kind of two steps. The first step is to kind of leverage the sort of uh, processes that are used to make uh, integrated circuit chips, computer chips. So Mm -hmm. it's a kind of a layer-by-layer process involves deposition of thin layers of materials, patterning of them, and then uh, repeating that sequence over and over again to build up a you know, multi-layer functional structure. But, you know, integrated circuits are in very flat planar geometries. They're not immediately relevant to micro-robots. So the second stage of the process is to take that initially fabricated kind of planar, flat, multi-layer structure and cause it to pop up out of the plane to adopt kind of a desired 3D-type architecture. And, And the way that we do that it kind of utilizes principles that aren't too dissimilar from those associated with a kid's pop-up book. We mm-hmm. don't use paper. Instead, we use a stretch rubber membrane. But, but it's that same kind of mechanical buckling that moves these functional materials up out of the plane into the geometry you know, that we're aiming to achieve, whether it's a crab or an inchworm or, or a grasshopper. This sounds like an alternative to 3D printing. Yeah, in a way, but it's much more powerful in a sense because we can immediately leverage all of the very sophisticated functional materials that have been developed for the integrated circuit industry. So we haven't yet incorporated radios and you know, microcontrollers and microprocessors into the into the bodies of these robots, but it's very straightforward to do that based on the way that they're being manufactured. And that lies uh, completely outside of the realm of what's possible with 3D printing, which works pretty well with plastics mm-hmm. and Certain types of ceramics, maybe metals, but you can't print transistors. You can't print actuators. You can't print kind of multi-layer, multifunctional, you know, material structures. So, so it's it's different, and I think it's better suited for the creation of micro robots. Uh, actually, so there is a, an advantage, you think, over three D printing. Uh, yeah, maybe 3D printing could be a complementary technique. Maybe you form, you know, the structure and the skeleton and the kind of the muscles of the robots in, in the way that we are doing it. And then you could come in and then 3D print different types of structures on top of that preformed 3D micro robot. But I don't think you can achieve the kinds of robots that, that we're able to build with 3D printing directly. So maybe they're more complementary than competitive in that sense. What inspires you to um, design robots in the shape of beetles, inchworms, and, you know, other members of the natural world. Yeah, crazy students, basically. Crazy students. <laughs> Just fun things to do. I mean, we run an institute <laughs> here. That's so I was right. Fun. You are mad yeah. scientists. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> guilty on that, I guess. But we run an institute that's focused on, you know, research at the boundaries between engineering and medicine. And most of what we work on is directed towards specific unmet clinical needs. That's probably 70, 80% of what we do. But we think it's important to have within the broader mix of things going on here, sort of over the horizon, kind of lunatic fringe type projects. And this effort falls into that category, I would say. Yeah. Well, do you feel like you're improving on biology by, by taking advantage of evolutionary design? 
Yeah, at, at some level, you know, I think that the shapes of these structures, as we've discussed, use biology as, as inspiration. I think, you know, the crabs in particular, we kind of use a thin film of a, of a glass-type material to create sort of an exoskeleton. So, again, there's kind of an analogy there. But the way that our muscles work, it's based on a shape memory alloy. It's a metal alloy. It's, like, totally different than you know, what, what biology uses for, for muscles and, and actuation. So there's a little bit of inspiration in there, but it's not mimicry. We're not trying to reproduce, you know, what you see in the living world one-to-one. We're just not yeah. sophisticated enough to do that. So we try to some, you know, primitive but, but equivalent approaches in terms of uh, what, what you can do. So, John, as, as we've mentioned, it's the smallest remote-controlled walking robot that was ever constructed. It seems like a pretty major accomplishment. Can you talk about other tiny walking robots that are out there? There aren't too many. There there are some that are designed to swim. So kind of little worms and like fish-looking robots oh. that, that can move through liquid media. So there are a number of uh, research groups that have published robots of, of that sort. You know, we're part of a broader community of academic researchers thinking about micro-robots as a frontier in robotics uh, research. But I think the vast majority of it is, as I mentioned, focused around swimming robots. And I think that sort of makes sense for medical applications. You want these things to kind of swim through, you know, the bloodstream and arteries and veins and yeah. so on. But it's also, you know, um, turns out to be much easier to make a swimming robot than one that walks on a solid surface in open air. And so we decided to kind of take on that challenge as a way to kind of complement some of the other work that's happening within this broader community. But I think, you know, in a broader sense, we're hoping to add technical capabilities and some new ideas around actuators and manufacturing that can sort of add to the mix of technology options that are emerging from this community of researchers. And, you know, in the future, maybe you take different pieces of these these ideas and you put them together and eventually make a system that really performs, you know, a task addressing a, a medical need. I think that that's the vision for the future. Yeah, let's let's talk more about that because the, the work right now that we're, we're talking about, it's still in kind of an exploratory phase. But you do have uh, aspirations for what these tiny crab robots could someday be used for. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think one obvious example might be to disrupt plaque that's causing blockage uh, in an artery. And kind of to take a step back, if you if you think about what's happening in your know, medical technology for, for surgeries, there's been a real set of advances that, that have powerfully changed for surgeries from very highly invasive procedures that require long recovery times and very high levels of risk for for patients to those that are much less uh, invasive, typically based based on catheters with various kinds of functional components, balloons, mapping devices for ablation and monitoring electrophysiology and so on. And so I think the next phase of development will involve sort of autonomous small-scale robots that Mm -hmm. can enter your body and perform a task. So that's kind of where we see this technology on, on the continuum and kind of the timeline of how medical practice has advanced. So, you know, removing plaques or, or maybe uh, even suturing damaged uh, blood vessels in situ to eliminate an internal bleed would be another example. Or conducting a biopsy might, might be a simple additional task that you can envision, but in a minimally invasive way. Or 
addressing a malignant uh, tumorous tissue, sort of extracting that, that tissue and removing it from the body. There are a number of different tasks that you can envision that are done now with bulk implements or catheter-based approaches that could be reproduced in, in an even more powerful and effective way That's using very cool. tiny robots in the body. Yeah, I'm thinking, I'm thinking you might be onto something with the, with the biopsy mentioned. I, I can see that working mm-hmm. for sure. Last year, your team created the world's smallest ever human-made flying structure inspired by flying seeds, I hear. Tell us briefly about the, uh, the winged microchip you built. So it's another kind of related effort, a little bit different, but, but what we were thinking about there is sort of a- adding winged flight to microchip technology. So integrated circuits and digital sensors and radio communication modules and so on. And, and, the, and the vision there was to kind of build on our work that we've been pursuing over time around body integrated sensors of various types to monitor physiological status, health status, and you know, kind of asking the question, could we adapt those same kinds of sensors for monitoring the health of our environment, our surroundings, uh, air quality, for example, your pollution levels in groundwater and so on? And mm-hmm. in thinking about that vision, the, the question becomes, how do I disperse those kinds of sensors across length scales, you know, areas of the environment that would be relevant for sort of monitoring spatial and temporal changes in, in various environmental parameters? And so we decided it would be best if we could figure out a way to make these sensors fly away, you know, and then land at different locations. Wow. And uh, that was the original vision to create kind of an uh, autonomous level of flight. We decided that that might be a little bit ambitious from an engineering standpoint. So instead, we looked to plant life to uh, provide inspiration. That's cool. We'd have to leave it there, though. That is John Rogers, a professor of materials science, biomedical engineering, and neurological surgery at Northwestern University's McCormick School. Thank you, John. Thank you for having me. That's it for today's Reset. For more conversations about cool things that are happening in the science world, like this one, subscribe to this podcast. And if you like what you hear, be sure to give us a rating. It really helps other people find us. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening. We'll meet again tomorrow. Thank you.